All right, if you'll stand with me as we read from God's Word. This morning's passage is out of the book of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to read verses 13 through 17. And if you're using a Bible from the back of the pew in front of you, you can find it on page 582. Again, we're going to read Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just ask humbly as we prepare this next month to uh, God to just partake in the privilege of voting and, uh, and electing our leadership. God, we just pray that you would continue to remind us, Lord, that uh, you are all-powerful. God, this is your process. Lord, thank you for giving us the privilege in this country to be a part of it. Lord, we just ask for your wisdom, and we ask for your guidance. And Lord, we just yield to uh, your power, to your sovereign will. And we thank you for the country that we have. And God, we just pray for our leaders in Christ's name. Amen. It's been said probably many times over that if you want to start an argument, just start talking about religion or politics. But if you want to start a war, then just start talking about religion and politics. Now, I don't want to start a war here this morning in our worship service, but I do want to talk about religion and politics. Originally, I had planned to continue in our series in the book of Acts and uh, to do so through the month of November and to continue in chapters 15 and 16. But since we can't get away from all the frenzy of the upcoming election, we're going to shift gears a bit and we're going to start a, a short three-week series called Politics and Presidents. And then we will come back at the end of this series and we will then resume in the book of Acts and do Acts chapter 15. By way of introduction, how many of you have election fatigue? Anybody here? Sure, look at the hands go up. That is, you are sick and tired of pretty much anything and everything that is related to the election. You're tired of the bickering, perhaps. You're tired of the debates, the name-calling, the media bias, the rhetoric, the politics, the sound bites, the scandals, and most of all, the barrage of ads on social media, radio, and TV. I'll be the first to admit, I can't wait to watch a football game without seeing an ad for a candidate to vote for. But what concerns me most is that we're just not tired of the election. We are troubled by this election. We're troubled by the lack of character in at least two of the candidates. 
As you are very well aware, one is crude and the other is corrupt. And it's troubling to think that one of them is going to be the next president of the United States of America. And that is troubling, too. We're a divided nation, not a united nation. This is one of the most polarizing elections in history. And in the process, the issues on the party platforms are getting lost in the chaos. So what's a Christian to do? Do we run for the mountains and hide from the government, as some will try to do? Do we bunker down in our houses and not vote, as some will surely do? So what's a Christian to do? Well, I hope to answer that question today and in the following two Sundays. I hope to answer that question not from my point of view or from your point of view or from any political point of view. I hope to answer that question from God's point of view, from God's truth in His Word. And so what I want to do in this series is simply offer us here is Election Day Truth for Troubled Christ Followers. If you'll notice in your notes, and coming up on the screen, you're welcome to take notes, you can pull that insert out in your bulletin, is no matter what you're troubled by in this election, we can rest in the certainty of God's Word before, on, and after the election. You may not be able to rest in the character of the candidates, or even in their competency to lead our country. But folks, we can rest in the certainty of God's Word before Election Day, on Election Day, and after Election Day. God's Word has a lot to say about politics and presidents. And so I want to encourage you to let God's Word guide your thinking in this election process and to even calm your hearts when it comes to this election. This morning, what I want us to do is to look at a question that's really been discussed and debated for well over 2,000 years. And so this is not a new question, and yet it continues to be a question that pops up every so often. And perhaps you yourself have even asked this question. You've wondered this question in your own mind. And that is, should Christ followers obey the government? This question is much easier to answer when you live in a democracy or when the winds of governmental laws and policies are blowing in your direction. But what do you do when the laws of the land are blowing against you? Blowing against your belief system? Then what do you do? Should we obey the government and pay taxes, especially if we despise its policies and are subjected to its oppression? Notice Jesus' answer. It's clear. It's loud. And he says in verse 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, that was an astonishing answer. In Jesus' day, when you consider that Tiberius Caesar was the Caesar in power in Jesus' day. In fact, of this particular Caesar in power, it was written, he plunged into every wickedness and disgrace. When fear and shame being cast off, he simply indulged in his own inclinations. 
Obviously, these first century Roman leaders were, were far from Christians. They were not elected democratically. They did not view their power as a gift from God. In fact, they considered themselves to be, quote, gods. Which makes what Jesus said all the more remarkable. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So how do we make sense of this, one of the more famous sayings in all the Bible? Certainly one of the more famous sayings that Jesus Christ ever said. How do we interpret this? How do we apply it? How do we make sense of this? Because obviously Jesus is speaking about government and God here. And according to Jesus, we have responsibilities to both. And so let's unpack what Jesus says on government and God. Notice number one. I want to set this in the context here in the Gospel of Mark, in the context of what is going on in the life of Christ when he makes this statement. And so what we're going to do, we're first going to look at the surrounding context of this statement, what's going on here, and then hopefully we'll make application for us here as Christ followers today, here in 2016, as we face an election. Number one, the trap is set for Jesus. The trap is set. This is the last week of Jesus' life, and his enemies are searching for a way to destroy him. And so according to verse 13, the Sanhedrin send to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to, quote, catch Jesus in his words. And so what we have here are two political enemies teaming up with one another in their hatred of Jesus. You have the Pharisees and you have the Herodians. And basically, here's what you need to know about the, both of these groups. The Pharisees were anti-Rome. The Herodians were pro-Rome. The Pharisees hated everything Rome represented. They hated the Roman occupation. They hated the Roman government. And most of all, the Pharisees hated the taxes they had to pay to Caesar for, quote, religious reasons. The Herodians, on the other hand, they were pro-Rome. They su were supremely loyal to Herod, who was put in charge by the Romans. So they supported the Roman government, which is why they also favored the Roman taxes to Caesar, because it actually provided their livelihood and expanded their power. So you can see why they were pro-Rome. The Pharisees hated Jesus because after all, Jesus came on the scene and he started messing around with their religious agenda. The Herodians, on the other hand, they opposed Jesus because, well, he came on the scene and he started threatening their political advantages. And amazingly, Jesus brought both of these groups together. Even though both of them, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hated one another. But their hatred for Jesus was more than their hatred for one another. And so they became allies in trying to trap Jesus in his words. This word trap, it actually means to capture by hunting or fishing. And so you might think of Jesus in this manner as he's being hunted like an animal or a fish. They hope to trap Jesus in a slip of the tongue in what he says, to say something perhaps incriminating that will enable them to finally take this guy down once and for all. The old saying still rings true. The enemy of my enemy is my 
friend. Notice their bipartisan plan to trap Jesus. Their attempted trap here. First of all, Jesus' opponents, they use truthful flattery to entice him. Look what they say in verse 14. It says, when they had come. And it's now speaking about the Pharisees and the Herodians who are now allies. They teamed up with one another to trap Jesus. And here's their method. Here's their approach. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. You can almost see how their lips are dripping with insincere flattery. And yet, what the Pharisees and Herodians said, let me tell you, was all very true about Jesus. Jesus is a man of absolute integrity and always teaches God's truth, and he does so without showing any partiality or any prejudice against man. But coming from the lips of such dishonest people, they were like the wicked man that King David condemned in Psalm chapter 55, verse 21, when it says, His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn with swords. Now, of course, Jesus, being Fully man, fully God. He smelled the stench of their hypocrisy, and he would not be snared by their trick question or by their hypocritical words and flattery here. His ego will not inflate, and his pride will not cause him to, to lower his guard as flattery is meant to do to somebody. Their flattery will not work on God's Son. Jesus will not be tripped up by the foolishness of men. But we also see something else they do. They not only use truthful flattery to try to entice Jesus, but number two, they used a deceptive question to try to entrap Jesus. The trap is now sprung with a question that had been carefully crafted in verses 14 and 15. Notice it. They come to Jesus... First of all, with flattery, buttering him up. And then they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? And when they use the word lawful, it's not lawful according to the Roman laws of the land. They are using that word in regards to, is it lawful according to the laws of God, according to the Torah in the Old Testament? What a question for the ages here. And it requires, as you can see, a yes or no answer. Heads or tails. They think they have Jesus. Regardless of his answer, Jesus loses. Or so they thought. Now the question here was meant to hang Jesus on the dual horns of a dilemma. So he would impel himself on either one of the horns. This was an explosive question in those days. After all, we're talking about politics and taxes. It's an explosive question in our day. And the answer Jesus gave, folks, was potentially fatal to Jesus himself. The tax in question that they are bringing to Jesus was a census tax, or you might call it a poll tax, a head tax, imposed on every Jewish citizen simply for the privilege of living in the Roman Empire. And even though the tax was only one denarius per year, 
which was basically an average day's wage for the common worker in those days, the Jewish people despised this particular tax. It was a bitter reminder of the Roman government's rule in their own land. You mean I have to pay a tax simply for the privilege of living in my land because you are now occupying it? You're ruling it? Oh, they hated this tax. And so you can see the trap that they now set for Jesus Christ. If Jesus says, pay the tax, then the Pharisees would charge Jesus with advocating some type of compromise with Rome. And the Jewish people would consider Jesus to be a traitor. They would turn against him. And if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, then the Herodians would charge Jesus with inciting some type of political rebellion against Rome. And Jesus would be guilty of insurrection against the Roman government. And let me tell you, silence was not an option here. Jesus had to say something. And his enemies waited for him to reveal himself either as some sort of political messiah or a political revolutionary. Jesus seemed to be caught on the horns of a dilemma here. If he told the people to pay their taxes, he would lose his popularity with the Jews. But if he told the people don't pay their taxes, he would surely lose his life with the Romans. Yes, the Pharisees and the Herodians thought they had trapped Jesus. But they are about to find out just how wrong they are. Number two, the trap is now exposed by Jesus. The moment of truth has arrived. Which way will Jesus go? Who will he alienate with his answer? As you might imagine, all eyes are on Jesus and the people held their breath to hear what he would say. Jesus was fully aware of their hypocrisy. And so he says to his enemies in verse 15, I love this question of Jesus, why do you test me? He says it with authority. He says it with power. He says it with all-knowing. In other words, Jesus is letting them know that he knows what they're up to. That he knows the evil in their hearts. He knows their motivation for even asking the question in the first place. If these men thought they could trap Jesus with this kind of trick, they were badly mistaken. What Jesus says next not only exposes his enemies, but folks, it blows them away. Jesus says in verse 15, bring me a denarius that I may see it. And so they brought Jesus a denarius, and he holds up the coin, and he says to them in verse 16, whose image and inscription is this? And of course, they reluctantly had to admit to Jesus it was Caesar's image. It was Caesar's inscription. Now what's unique about this coin particularly is that on one side of the coin was the head of Tiberius Caesar who was in power at that time with the inscription Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. 
And on the reverse side of the coin was the inscription Pontifex Maximus, meaning high priest or chief priest. And so you can see why the Jews hated this particular coin. They found this coin to be actually idolatrous. Here is an image of a man who's claiming to be a god, blaspheming in the eyes of the Jewish people. And then Jesus gave this dramatic response to their diabolical question in verse 17. This is answer we've already seen. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, what I want us to do here is I just want us to take a moment here to unpack a little bit Jesus' answer in this. Because what Jesus does here has practical ramifications, implications for us here today in the 21st century. When you look at Jesus' astonishing escape, notice, first of all, number one, that Jesus resisted political simplicity with his question. He resisted political simplicity. The Pharisees and Herodians pressed Jesus for a yes or no answer with their question. But Jesus refused to give them a political, simple answer. Their question was the classic unfair question, Bill, have you stopped beating your wife yet? However Bill answers, he's incriminating himself. And that's what they were trying to do with Jesus here. That is a lose-lose predicament. If Jesus recognized this, he recognized their evil intent, and he would not be manipulated by their political game. He resisted political simplicity with his own question, whose image and inscription is on this coin? Now, I'll be the first to admit, as like most people, I like yes or no options. And I'm sure most of you here like yes or no options. It's clean. It's clear-cut. However, life is rarely that simple. If Jesus had been living here today, or was living here today, I can just see people coming up to Jesus Christ and asking him, which is Christian? To vote Democrat or Republican? Which is lawful? Lord, tell us your answer. Pastor and author Tim Keller said in a sermon arguing about politics, and I quote, We must not say that political party, that specific political program, that specific political platform is Jesus' party program and platform. Or Jesus is for that party, not for that party. Jesus is for that program, not for that program. We must not say all Christians, Bible-believing Christians, that's who they should vote for. Here's the lesson. Beware of political simplicity, especially in our day and age of trying to reduce issues to a simple yes or no answer. And then trying to make Jesus fit in on one side or the other. It's rarely that simple. 
But we also learn something else here that Jesus does. He not only refuses political simplicity, but Jesus refused political supremacy with his answer. The Pharisees and the Herodians had one major flaw in their reasoning. They were asking a yes or no question. Either the tax was lawful or it wasn't. But Jesus knew the question was much deeper than is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? You see, that is the surface question. But there's something much deeper below the question that Jesus wants to get at. You see, although they wanted a simple yes or no answer, Jesus does not give them a simple answer and then just leave it at that. Instead, Jesus, he shifts the discussion from politics to the deeper issue of one's devotion or one's allegiance that forces them to think about their own devotion to government and to God. You see, the problem is, when we're devoted to something, we often idolize it. And boy, are we, are we not seeing that here in this election year. When we idolize one party, we tend to demonize the other party. And this leads to the animosity and the shouting matches that we see in our mobile devices and TV screens. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have to acknowledge that no one political party represents all the Christian ethics and values we think are important. One party may represent biblical values more than the other, but no political party is supreme. They all have their faults. They all get certain things wrong. In fact, many, many things wrong. So here's the point that Jesus is making then and even now for us. Caesar isn't Lord, and the government isn't God. And so politics is not the only way or even the supreme way to solve our problems. Which brings us back to Jesus' answer in verse 17. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus' answer is completely unexpected. They never saw it coming. The Pharisees and Herodians never saw it coming. The people standing by and listening in were blown away by this answer. Once again, Jesus' enemies were silenced as he slipped through the horns of their dilemma. People could hardly object to giving Caesar what was rightfully his. After all, his face, his image was on the very coin in their pockets. Nor could the people object to giving God what belonged to God because they claimed to be his servants. Now, this is by far and away the most influential statement that anyone has ever made on the subject of religion and politics. And yet, this still leaves us with two overarching questions that we must answer. Which things belong to Caesar and which things belong to God? After all, Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. So which things belong to Caesar? And then he says, render unto God the things that are God's. So which things belong to God? 
As Ravi Zacharias points out, they should have had a follow-up question to Jesus' answer. They should have asked, what belongs to God? And Jesus would have said, whose image is on you? Give to Caesar the things which belong to Caesar and give to God the things which belong to God. So what then does Jesus' answer to a 2,000-year-old question mean for us here today? Well, notice Jesus' election day truth for troubled Christ followers. Here it is. Obey the government as long as you can and worship God as long as you live. That is the application. It's not only the application for the people in Jesus' day, it is the application for Jesus' people, His followers, us, Christ's followers, for our day even now. Obey the government as long as you can. And worship God as long as you live. Now, Let me unpack this a little bit. We need to begin by recognizing that some things really do belong to Caesar. And when we say Caesar, Caesar is a representation or a symbol of government. Jesus did not come to overthrow Caesar's empire and to set up an alternative government. Instead, Jesus acknowledged that even Caesar has his proper place of earthly authority and his appropriate sphere of political influence. Caesar has his authority because it is given to him by who? God. Later on, Paul, the Apostle Paul, will write in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, when he says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established, or God has instituted. And God has instituted and established governmental authorities. Though not unlimited, Jesus acknowledges the legitimacy of human government. In the article, Making Sense of God and Government, Kevin DeYoung writes, God has instituted human government, though imperfect. Sometimes it is tragically imperfect, he says. However frustrated you may be with the government, you must remember God has instituted it, and any good that comes from it is a gift of common grace. Paul expands on this gift of common grace that we receive from government. In Romans 13, when he says that government, their responsibilities, the reason God gives them authority is to provide civil order in a society, to provide peace in a society, and even some means of justice in a society. Paul goes on to say in Romans 13, verses 6 and 7, after saying what the government is for, he says this is also why, why you pay taxes. In other words, the reason we pay taxes is for the services we get out of the government. Now, you, we can debate all we want on the quality of those services. Even the Jews were benefiting from the services of the Roman Empire. And so Paul says, this is also a way you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. 
Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Richard Halverson, who was the chaplain of the United States Senate from 1981 to 1994, wrote, and I quote these words, to be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state. Just as men, because of sin, have abused and misused every other institution in history, including the church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world. And this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin that there must, by human government, to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy, and the Christian must recognize the, quote, divine right of the state. This means that we can be good citizens of some very bad governments. Which means we should obey the government as long as we can. Government has the right to levy taxes. And we have the right, or the responsibility, I should say, to pay them. Government has the right to make laws, and we have the responsibility to obey. Of course, there are some exceptions to this. We are not obligated to do anything immoral or anything that directly conflicts with God's word, whatever the government must say. And so when government demands what God forbids, then we have to have the courage, we have to have the boldness to say what Peter and John said to the Sanhedrin in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. But the point Jesus is making here, the point then and now, is obey the government as long as you can. And worship God as long as you live. What Jesus is doing here is he's moving from the lesser to the infinitely greater in his analogy. He's moving from the Roman emperor to the king of the universe. And Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. One New Testament scholar put it this way, that pregnant sentence does not present us with two equal magnitudes, Caesar and God. The second is clearly the superior to the first. So what then belongs to God? We know what belongs to Caesar. The most tangible thing are taxes. But what belongs to God? It only takes a moment to realize that what belongs to God is absolutely everything. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. 
Abraham, Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch preacher and politician, once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This helps us understand the true relationship between God and government. If everything belongs to God, then this must include Caesar himself. This was the fatal flaw in the reasoning, in the questioning by the Pharisees and the Herodians. You see, they were trying to make such a distinction between religion and politics that some things belong to Caesar and other things belong to God, but the truth is that even the things that belong to Caesar, folks, listen to me, belong to God. It all belongs to God. Caesar himself belongs to God because he is inscribed with God's image. Almost as if he himself were a coin. And also because God is the one who sets every authority in its place, including at that time Caesar's authority. Caesar's empire belongs to God because according to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever. Caesar's money belongs to God, even if Caesar's face is on it because every coin is part of God's economy. This also means the things that we give to Caesar also belong to God. When we, quote, render unto Caesar, what we are really doing is rendering unto God. And so as we pay our taxes and obey the government, we are doing it all for the glory of God. Later on, the Apostle Peter writes to us. He tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as to the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him. That little phrase that Peter uses, for the Lord's sake. That's Peter's way of saying that everything is God's. And this limits what is Caesar's. And so when you know all is God's, then anything you render to Caesar, you will render for God's sake. Any obedience you render to Caesar, you will render for the sake of obedience that you first owe God. Or as John Piper writes, any allegiance we give to government, we give as an act of worship to God. What a phenomenal saying we have here. Not just a saying, but a truth. A truth that transcends the ages. A truth that transcends cultures and even different governments. With one profound saying, Jesus put everything in proper perspective. And oh, do we need perspective in this election year, especially as Christ follows. Obey the government as long as you can and worship God as long as you live. 
Have you ever seen a king like Jesus? Do you realize politicians can't do a darn single good thing unless they get power? Unless they get elected. But Jesus Christ says that the climax of my kingship and my career will not be when I get elected, but when I get executed. But the Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't understand this redemptive purpose of Jesus Christ. Jesus was doing something here that politics and presidents cannot do and will never be able to do. You see, the major problems in our world are not political they are spiritual. And this is why they cannot be fixed by governments and presidents. In any given situation, the essential problem, the core problem, the underneath problem has to do with sin. We don't need so much as government overhaul or political reformation as we need God's redemption through Jesus Christ. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why our theme is getting the gospel to here, there, and everywhere because the gospel is mankind's problem. We don't send out ambassadors to fix other countries' political problems. That's not the church's purpose. It's not our purpose. As C.S. Lewis once said, you cannot make men good by law. And when we begin to understand this, when we begin to have this perspective, God's perspective, then we will have a biblical view of government and we will begin to accept that government cannot legislate new hearts. Which then helps us not to exalt politics and presidents as the means by which we try to usher in the redemptive kingdom of God in this world. Think about it. If our ultimate hope is tied to the security of America or the ideology of the political party that you favor or even who wins this presidency, we will always be let down. Folks, our hope does not rest in politics and presidents. Our hope rests in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because only Jesus can change the hearts of people. And so pay your taxes, but trust in Jesus Christ. Vote on election day, but follow Jesus every day. Regardless of who wins this election, Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God. This is not only one of the most important things Jesus ever said about religion and politics, it's one of the most important things Jesus ever said about anything. Give to God what belongs to God. And if we ask what belongs to God, the answer is everything. To make this point about paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus used a coin that was made in Caesar's image. Jesus could do the same thing with each of us here today. Because we are made in the royal image of our king. 
The fact that we are created in God's likeness is the proof of His ownership. It shows that we belong to Him. We see an even greater proof in the cross where Jesus died for our sins. And so the God who demands that we give everything to Him has already given everything to us, including His own blood. So I leave you with this question. What will you render to God for the sake of the Savior whose body was rendered for you? Jesus says, give God your life. Give God your worship. Obey the government as long as you can, but worship God as long as you live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word and for the triumph of Jesus Christ over his enemies. Father, we also ask that you hide this truth in our troubled hearts and that we would rest in you alone. Father, give us grace to live as Christ followers before, on, and after this election. And may we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto you what is yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The praise team's going to sing a chorus. And you are invited to come before God, come before the King of Kings, and surrender your life, to render your life and your worship to Him.